Could you imagine a scenario in which your entire identity could change in a split second? This is exactly what happened to my guest today, Michael Fosberg, who was raised in a working class Armenian-American family led by his biological mother and his adoptive father. When, in his 30s, his parents divorced, Michael began a search to find his long-lost father, a search that would forever change his life. Welcome to episode 181 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I'm your host, Julie Brown, speaker, author, and networking coach. And today, I am joined by Michael, speaker, playwright, and author of the book, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversation. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. When Michael decided to look for his biological father, his mother gave him information on where she knew he had last lived. Michael tracked him down by phone, and to his great relief, his father was happy to talk to him. But in that first conversation, his father told him something that would change everything about the way he saw himself. His father is Black. Since then, Michael has utilized his award-winning autobiographical story told in the form of a one-man play as an entry point for meaningful dialogues on race and identity, and in his most recent book, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, He has assembled a set of seven important tools and takeaways useful in navigating uncomfortable conversations about race and identity, something that this country desperately needs. Well, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Julie. So good to be with you. It's so weird to hear your story. (laughs) Isn't it? You're like, you you almost like sort of disassociate from it. And then you realize, oh, that's my story. No, right. That's me. Oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that day, that day that you first talked to your father and that you learned that you're half black. Yeah. Like, how did your sense of self change that day? Because up until that point, you thought you were white. Yeah. Yeah. So for listeners who can't see us, uh, I I pass, I guess, is the phrase that's used in the black community, passing as white. Um, or am I passing is, I guess, another question that could be asked. I mean, what is passing? Mm-hmm. Passing in the black community is that you have a light enough skin to pass as a white person. But am I, what am I? I guess is a better question. Oh, am I biracial? What am I? A Barack Obama was a biracial president, but we all call him black. So um, the, that day, you asked about that day. Uh, it was crazy. I mean, you know, I didn't know who my father was for all those years, although I grew up with a very loving father, loving family household. Um, they had divorced and that's what sort of spurred me to, to look for my biological father. And so I was filled with some grief of my parents splitting up and also some wonder and curiosity and some anxiety about, you know, looking for the man who I didn't know and tracking him down in a first phone call, which is kind of a miracle. Um, and then in that first phone call, him proceeding to tell me that he's black and, and, and in addition to that, 
as if that if, as if that wasn't enough to sort of change your whole being and thinking and all of that. He also pr- proceeded to tell me about my family history dating all the way back to slavery. My great great grandfather was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War. My great grandfather was an all-star pitcher in the Negro Leagues. He pitched for the St. Louis Stars. And my grandfather was a genius in the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University and HBC is named after my grandfather. So so all of that came in the first phone call. So, you you know, just 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 unpacking all of that obviously was was an enormous task and uh, and uh, subsequently led to many years of therapy. Oh, I would imagine. I mean, number one, everybody should go to therapy, no matter if you have, if you are finding out all these, all yeah. these things about your your past and your lineage. <laughs> everybody should go to therapy anyway. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> um, that sort of explains to me why you had so much to pour into this one man show that you did. I also am a person who was reconnected to a biological father when I was adult, and. I think there are certain times in our life where we just are, I don't know, we're just wondering who we are and where we came from and trying to make sense of why we do the things we do. Yeah. Is it nature or nurture? But I can imagine that was almost like information to overload for you. Yes, yes. Well, I think you just you, you just nailed it there, though. I think everybody goes on this journey. Obviously, you and I, having searched for a, a biological parent, it's a it's a it's a much bigger, shall we say, surprise or whatever. But everyone's on a journey of trying to discover who they are, how they fit in. Um, I mean, these are all things that we're trying to figure out, like where where, where who are we? That's the, it's the journey of identity. And I talk about this a lot in the work that I do is that. Um, our journey of identity is constantly evolving, constantly changing. It's not like you get to a place in your life and you go, that's it. I know who I am. Yeah. I mean, things happen in your life like I don't, you know, simple things, whether it's you get married and now you see yourself as a husband or a wife or you have kids and suddenly you see yourself as a parent or your kids have kids and suddenly you see yourself as a grandparent. These are more simplistic things, but these are things that change in the way that we see our identities. And so to have such a big jump in my identity and certainly I imagine for you too to 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 discover your biological father put into place for you a lot of questions that you had asked yourself. You know, it's interesting. My story is a little bit different than you. I already, I always knew who my biological father was and I knew his family. I just didn't have a relationship with him. He was estranged. Uh. Um, and he, he was estranged for a lot of different reasons. But make a long story short, when he got sober is when he tried to reconnect with me. And it's funny because when you don't know who your biological father is or you don't spend time with them, there are pieces of your personality where you wonder where things came from. And then almost it's like it's almost like you're putting puzzle pieces together when you meet that other person. Now, you've got it on a whole different level. I did find out my father was a different race than I thought I was. But I think this also, you know, you lived your first 30 something years of your life identifying as a certain race. And then the next part of your life, I, you know, having that knowledge that you are a different, you are a different race than you thought you were, which I'm assuming is how, what prepared you to write the book that you just wrote The nobody wants to talk about it because I, and I think that 
we're we as a country of immigrants, we're never not going to talk about race. We are all different races. So why do you think it's so difficult for us to talk about it, knowing that we live in a country of immigrants? Well, you you've kind of hit the nail on the head as they as the cliche goes. I mean, you know, right now we live in a in an era, not just in our country, but in the world in which immigration and immigrants are looked down upon. And so whatever it might be, whether it's their religion, the color of their skin, what they believe, uh, how they look, all of these different things play into how people judge immigrants. The question of race and having conversation about race is a, is is fraught on multiple levels for many reasons. Look, we when when we're asked to have ra- a conversation about race in mixed company can be very awkward and uncomfortable, primarily because as as white people and I'm both, so it's complicated. <laughs> but but also because as white people, we come to the table with apprehensions, with cautions. We're cautious about talking about race because we don't want to say anything that might sound racist right. or offensive or whatever. Also. We probably haven't had that conversation in our immediate families while we were growing up because it wasn't necessary to have that conversation. So I think for me, especially as a white man, well, white, I'm biracial now, as as growing up as a white person, like race wasn't something that we had a lot of conversation about in my family. And so now I was interjecting that conversation into my family. So there was a, a little bit of hesitation in how we go about having that conversation. On the other side of the issue, we have people of color who are constantly having the conversation about race, but are ready to pounce on anyone or anybody that sounds says something that sounds remotely racist. And so we're polarized and we don't have the conversation. And what I'm suggesting to all of us is, yes, it's going to be messy, but we need yeah. to have that dialogue. We need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. In your in your book, you say that there are seven tools to start yeah. having these conversations. Yeah. Can we break those down a little bit? I just, so that- yes, absolutely. I just said one right there. It's uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable. That is yep. uh, in the in the book. It's tool number five. But okay. the, the first tool is um, is tell your story. Um, and this is so beautiful because you just did that with me. You just told me a little bit about your story and we found a commonality. We have more in common than we have different. So the first tool is tell your story. That's where we find our commonalities. The second tool is don't judge the differences. Flip the script. Instead of allowing the differences to create a wall between us, find a mutual interest and then embrace the differences. After all, if we were all the same, we'd be bored. We'd be bored. We all love to have, look, I think you have fantastic glasses on. Listeners, trust me, she's got fantastic glasses. (laughs) But you went out and found those glasses because you love the way they looked and the uniqueness of them so that you could be your unique self. The same with me. I like unique glasses. I want to be my unique self. We each have these individual aspects about us that want to be unique. And yet we also want to fit in as a whole. So what I'm suggesting is uh, it's it's a theory called intergroup contact theory. And that's the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have more in common than we have different. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. So those are the first two tools. The second tool is that we need to recognize that there isn't one way to have a conversation about race and identity. If there was one way to do it, we'd all be doing it. That would make it a lot easier, right? But 
But we all come to the table with a different experience of race and identity. And that's why it's so messy. There isn't mm -hmm. one way to do it. Um, number four, and this is so important in today's society, we can disagree so long as we're not disagreeable. Mm -hmm. Once we are disagreeable, the conversation stops. Yeah. Let's just agree that we don't agree on this particular issue or whatever it might be. But when you become disagreeable, you stop the conversation from moving forward. And so yeah. um, that's something. Take responsibilities. Freedom of speech carries responsibilities. We need to accept the responsibilities of that. Number five, as I mentioned, is get comfortable being uncomfortable. Number six is understand there are realities outside of our own experiences. Just because we haven't, um, made, maybe we haven't experienced racism or sexism or homophobia or age discrimination or disability indifference doesn't mean that those are not realities for other people. And so we need to accept that. And number seven is... Um, and this is a very uh, difficult and also very deep thing. It's um, we need to practice forgiveness. Mm. Um, it has uh, often been described as the hardest work you will ever do, but also the most rewarding. I don't think I w am good at that one. <laughs> <laughs> and any part of my life, I got to tell you, Michael, I literally I'm. Everybody who listens to this knows I'm like a big fan of true crime and whatever. Yeah. And even this morning, I, oh, I, the, the news program, Good Morning America, was running a little thing on the Murdaugh yeah. uh, case. And this particular one was the fraud and money laundering yes. case. Yeah. And there were people in, in that he had stolen millions of dollars from in these lawsuits that they had gotten insurance money and then he had stolen the insurance money. And one woman said, you know, I forgive you. And I was like that those words are not the words that would come out of my mouth. And I think it is a huge flaw. It is a character flaw of mine. But I. Well, one is tough for me. <laughs> well, let me let me just say just because you forgive someone doesn't mean you condone their behavior. Yeah. No, you can forgive someone and not condone their behavior and still think what they did was evil or wrong or whatever you want to describe it as. Mm -hmm. But I will say this. If you continue to hold on to that resentment, that resentment will always be there. It will weigh on you. And by allowing yourself to let that go, you are freeing yourself. And so yeah. I'm not suggesting that I'm perfect at this at all, but I'm suggesting that this is something that we could all take a look to as a means to help uh, lessen some of the anger that's in our atmosphere today. Yeah. I mean, it seems like those seven steps are, or tool steps, because mm -hmm. you don't have to do them in that order. No, right? you don't. They're, no. Yeah. They're tools. I mean, yeah. and I think any of them alone would be helpful, but obviously together they change um, relationships and conversations. Right. You know, as we sit here today having this conversation, we're in the middle of a ceasefire in, in the Gaza Strip for the transfer of hostages and prisoners. And I just wonder, like, sometimes you look and, and have we entered a time in which there's just too much hatred for things to get better or to be different? Like, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Um, 
I would say, I'm laughing when I'm saying this. I would say I have a little bit more of a pessimistic view about it, but that being said, that being said, I mean, there is a lot of strife, let's call it whatever, war, strife, whatever in the world. And I I can only speak, um, I guess, directly about what's happening in my own sphere, in my own Mm -hmm. world, meaning in the United States. I, I don't live in Israel. I don't live in Ukraine. I, I, li- right. I live here and I deal with people here and I'm distraught as, at, as perhaps you are at what is happening in our country. Um, our politics are poisoned. Our, mm-hmm. our, our, our people are poisoned and angry with one another. And all I can say is that if we don't make some concerted efforts to either use these tools or find ways in which we can speak with one another in a civil manner, and not allow our anger to overtake us, we're, we're doomed. We've right. got to do this. This is the only way. There's no magic pill that's going to get us out of this. There's no, you know, can't wave a wand and say, okay, it's all okay. We are the ones who have to do this. And that is why I am so committed to doing this work, traveling around the country, speaking with corporations and government agencies and military bases and high schools and colleges and trying to get them to understand that we may have differences in ideology, differences in skin color, differences in gender differences and the way that we see the world, but we actually have more in common than we have different and we need to find those commonalities and embrace them. Yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts. I did a podcast a a few months ago on how corporate DEI statements are actually a turnoff to most candidates. Yes. Because there's no substance behind it. There's no reason behind it. It's more like, oh, we have to have a DEI statement, so we'll craft a DEI statement. Yes. Um. I'd love to know how you work with companies, organizations to have it be something that is part of the fabric of their company and not something that they think that they have to do and not really dig deep into it to make it part of their culture. Boy, how do I answer this? Well, first of all, I guess I would say there is currently right now a lot of pushback on that. As you mentioned, there's a lot of pushback yeah. on DE&I and D&I statements in general. And although I am... I guess what I do is sort of branded in that space. My message is so much bigger than that. And so I've been trying to utilize different, I don't know, words or phrasing to sort of get at what it is that I'm trying to, my message, what synthesize what my message And my message is about authenticity, belonging, and community. If I were to think of that to me, it is the essence of what I'm trying to get at. And every company, every community needs that mm-hmm. desperately. So I also realize that a lot of people haven't reframed what things are. And so they're still calling it this. And I'm speaking of DE&I in particular, mm-hmm. diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. Sometimes it's called that. It's a bigger picture or whatever. I guess I would say... I think it's important for us to remember that we we need to be more, I'm just going to use the I word, inclusive because it brings us greater outcomes. 
every study, every test, every poll, everything that you look at shows that the wider variety of people that you bring in and embrace, mm -hmm. the greater the outcomes, whether it's in an educational institution or it's in a business, the more that you can bring a wide variety of people into the fold, I guess is the way to put it, the greater the outcomes you will have. You're not going to leave and, and, you know, to leave it um, to just to say the crassness of it, you're not going to leave any money on the table. You're going to yeah. be able to bring in a lot of different people who are going to embrace your message, your service, your product. Yeah. And I think a lot of, on a very human level, I think a lot of our fear of other people, I don't know another better, better word for that fear of other people is just not knowing where they come from, not having an understanding of their culture, right. of how things are different of how things that are normal in the way I grew up are not normal in the way other people grow up. And there's, like you said, there's no one right way to have a conversation. Well, there's, there's things that are different that are innately different. And the reason we don't understand them is because we haven't taken the time to discover them. Absolutely. Tool, tool number one, tell your story, tell yeah. your story. Again, there are you're going to find, you're going to discover a rich array of commonalities, and, but you're also going to hear some differences and you're going to go, oh, that's interesting. I want to know more about that. Yeah. You know, I once heard a, a CEO of a, a, a huge multinational corporation. Um, I used to, um, they used to, this was amazing. They used to have a diversity conference every year and they would invite about a thousand of their employees from sites all across the world. And they would gather together for three days and they would have an intensive diversity training experience and the CEO would open up the conference and speak and he would talk about, you know, the state of affairs at our, at our corporation and talk all about this stuff. And then he would open up the room to accept questions from people in the room. So people got to ask their CEO a question, which, you know, rare, who gets to do that? Rarely right. do that. So, but he said, before you ask your question, I have a couple of, uh, of, of things I need to know from you. First, I want you to tell me the site that you work at. And second, I want you to tell me two hobbies. Tell me two of your hobbies. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a brilliant way to open the door. Like, yes. because your hobbies are things that we are passionate about. And so you're yep. describing something that you are very passionate about that really means something dear to you. And not only is that interesting, but then you may also have a commonality with that. So the CEO didn't always have a similar hobby as people did, but once in a while, they overlapped. And certainly things like, I think one person said once that he was a beekeeper. And I was like, wow, that is like, like, I want to know about your beekeeper. Mm -hmm. I want to know all about that. That's like a fascinating hobby, you know? And so, yeah. so it's a way, to, I thought it was a brilliant way to open the door for people to connect. It's so interesting that you say that because last week I gave a keynote, a virtual keynote in Africa to a woman's group in Africa. And I had been connected by a mutual connection who said, I, you know, I'd love virtually to speak to this group in Africa on networking. She's amazing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they reached out to me and asked me if I would do it. And I almost turned it down because I was so self-conscious about being a white woman 
growing up in the United States with all of the privilege that that has being white in the United States and lecturing to 100 African women. And I reached when they reached out to me, I wrote back and I said, I'd be delighted to. However, I'm not sure that I'm the right person for you because all of my experiences come from this narrow experience. Yes, I worked in male dominated industry, but I have all of the white privilege and I work in America. So and they wrote back and they were like, "Yeah, that's no big deal. And I was I was making it more than it was. Um, and at the end of my presentation, you know, I, similar to what you do, I, what that CEO did, I have a commonality exercise where we find what we have in common. Yeah. And I mentioned already that I'm very into true crime. Most of the women there were into true crime and wanted to talk to me about that. And then I mentioned I'm a dog mom and they had dogs and it was just like, I was only looking at the fact that I was white and they were black and I wasn't looking at all of the things we had in common, which is your number one, tell your story and find the commonality. But I almost turned down that engagement because I was so, uh, I was uncomfortable and afraid. Yeah, well, number two is don't judge the differences. You were self-judging your difference between this group of women. And yeah. yeah. And yet you discovered you had so much more in common than you had different. And that's right. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, and they asked me to come back. They were like, can you come in person next time? I was like, yes, I will. I mean, I've been to South oh, Africa. Yeah. I love the African continent. Right. Um, so I was like, yeah. And I I just, I can't believe I almost let it hold me back. And then if if someone like me, who is very comfortable in my expertise and very comfortable being an orator, almost gave up that opportunity because of fear. I can't imagine how prevalent is it is in people who are, you know, just starting to test the boundaries of making connections, which is something I'm an expert. So. Indeed. Indeed. I, I would agree. It's uh, it gets in our way. Yeah. How do you your one man story, your autobiographical one man play? I'm sure some people have come up to you afterwards with their own stories of finding their identity or maybe something similar to you um not understanding their their lineage or their past do any stories do you, that you remember that stick out to you oh my gosh julie so many <laughs> i mean seriously so many people come up to me afterwards well it, it it is the theory that i use again and i didn't discover this theory until i was well into the journey of of, of performing the play i read about it somewhere, I don't know, in an article or something. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm talking about intergroup contact theory. So I'm telling my story. I'm up there. Of course, I'm telling it perhaps in a different way than most people would tell it in the form of a one-man play where I play over a dozen characters over the course of 45 minutes. But everybody has a story, their own personal story. And people come up to me afterwards and tell me theirs. And it could be, I mean, I've had people who have had similar stories. When I was I was at a business college outside of Philadelphia and I was backstage getting ready to do this show. Um, and the audience, it was, you know, a huge theater and the place was packed. You could hear all the rumbling out in the audience and, you know, you're backstage by yourself. I don't know about you, but it's such a weird feeling to be by yeah. yourself, right? It's so lonely back there. Yeah. And, and I get a little nervous. I get nervous when I do the show and, and suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, breathing and sort of just getting into my routine, getting ready to go out on stage. And this guy comes charging backstage and he says, hi, my name is, I don't remember his name. My name is Jim. And I got to tell you, 
I just met my biological father this week and he's black and I didn't know it. And there's a white guy like telling me this story. And he goes, I couldn't wait to come and hear this. And I was like, well, that's so nice of you. You could have waited until after the show, but that is really nice. Felt so, so enamored to come backstage before I started. So, uh, you know, and then we talked after I did the show and he told me more about his story. It was incredible. I've had um, trans individuals come up to me afterwards in tears, just mm -hmm. talking about being able to share their stories in the way that I've shared mine. And it's right. just been so gratifying. I mean, again, we all go on this journey of identity, trying to figure out where we fit in and how we fit in. And trans yeah. people are no different than others. They're going through a journey in terms of trying to figure out who they are, what they are. Yeah. And so I've had just so many people. Um, I'll tell you one, a little more, one more specific story. And this was at the very beginning of the journey. I was doing the show in theaters at the time. I still had not wrapped my head around. I, I, I wasn't even familiar with the DE&I space. I was an actor. I had written a play. I was performing it at a theater. I was, in the, I was at the Kansas City Repertory Theater, a big regional theater in Kansas City. It was a big honor to be there. 800-seat theater. I opened their season in 2002. It was a huge moment for me as an actor, as a writer. Mm -hmm. And um, one night after the show, the stage manager came backstage and said, you know, there's a couple waiting for you in the green room. They they want to meet you. Would that be okay? And I said, well, do you know who they are? And she goes, no, I don't. And I'm like, well, okay. I don't know anybody in Kansas City, so I wasn't expecting anybody. So I go into right. the green room and there's this lovely couple. They're all dressed, you know, in nice clothing for an evening out at the theater, uh, husband and wife. And the wife comes up to me and says, you know, we just really wanted to thank you so deeply for you sharing your story, for you performing it. It just really moved us so much. Mm -hmm. I can't even put it into words. And my husband wanted to talk to you. And so I turned to look at him and there are tears in his eyes and now streaming down his face. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting choked up just telling the story. And he sort of begins to speak to me, but he can't get the words out. Instead of words coming out, tears are coming out. And I'm looking at him and I know who he is. He is a biracial man and he just heard his story on stage. It's the first time he's mm -hmm. heard his story. Yep. And he can't say, he, he's, he's so filled with with love and feeling he can't even express it. and his wife sort of butts in because she realizes this is an uncomfortable moment she goes he's just so deeply moved by your story he just really wanted to tell you and i just turned back to him he still could not tell me and i just embraced him in a big hug yeah. i said thank you so much for being here and for coming backstage and, and meeting and he then choked out thank you so much for telling your story it is so deeply close to mine right and I think that is the power on that is a lot of us, we self um, censor because we're not sure that anybody cares. Yeah. You know, why would anybody care? And you, what I've learned in telling stories now on stages for the past eight years is you don't know how many people you're going to affect and help until you start talking and telling your story. That's right. And then you will be amazed by the number of people who connect with you or relate to you 
were are emboldened or because of you. So telling your story is the like you said, it's number one. Yes. Number one. It's just we our whole society, our whole be- storytelling was the first form of communication yep. from cave person days. They told yep. stories in pictures on walls. Yeah. And we do that today in so many different ways, whether it's in a book or a movie or a play or a speech or uh, just connecting with another person face to face. Yeah. Michael, thank you so much for being here and having this conversation, for sharing your story, which I'm sure was hard to do while you were still going through it and processing it. You know, one of the things they say about being a professional speaker is you can't tell the story until you've gone through it and, and, and you're and you're over it. But what you have gone through is not something you're ever going to be over. It's still always going to be a part of your identity, who you were and who you are now. Yes. Um, I think it's very brave. Thank you so much. It's just a, a delight to be with you and to um, have this back and forth and to, to, to discover a little bit about you and to find commonality. It's, it's just delightful. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks. I recorded this conversation about an hour after I recorded my conversation with Henna Pryor. And it could not have been better timed because, like Michael said, in order to have these conversations, we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. So we might be awkward as we begin to navigate these conversations, as we begin to learn to share our stories and become curious and ask about the stories of others. And remember, there's no one way to have a conversation The most important thing is that we are having the conversation in the first place. I hope the seven tips that Michael shared will help ease you into discovering new ways to connect with people of all different backgrounds. Now, on to the drink of the week, which is the black and white cocktail from the Food Network. Here's what you're going to need. Two ounces of heavy cream. One ounce of vanilla-flavored vodka, one and a half ounces of chocolate liqueur, and a chocolate swizzle stick for garnish. What you're going to do is you're going to fill a cocktail shaker with ice. Add the cream and vodka. Cover and shake vigorously. Shake, 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 shake. About 30 seconds. Strain into a chilled cocktail glass and then slowly pour the chocolate liqueur into the center of the drink to make a layered black and white cocktail. Then you would lay that chocolate swizzle stick across the top of the glass. And then serve it. But before you drink it, stir the layers together with a swizzle stick. Otherwise, it's just going to be like layers of like alcohol and it's not going to taste good. All right, friends. (laughs) That's that was very eloquently put. Awkward. All right, friends. That's all for this week. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. Please remember to share this podcast to help it reach a larger audience. If you want more Julie Brown, you can find my book, This Shit Works, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can find me on LinkedIn at Julie Brown BD. Just let me know where you found me when you reach out. I'm Julie Brown underscore BD on the Instagram, or you can just pop on over to my website, juliebrownbd.com. Until next week, cheers. Cheers.